Let's bat dance the night away. Follow us into the black hole, where dreams are made, and David Bowie waits with a finely manicured mustache. Welcome to Channel 8 and a Half. Hello and thank you for joining us at Channel 8 and a Half, a show all about movies and TV and pop culture. My name is Joe Galena. And I'm Andrew Hanna. Andrew, how are you doing today? Joe, I'm doing well. In light of the release, or I guess semi-release of Tenant. It came today, out, technically. It, it came out, just not widely, <laughs> due to the Rona. Today we're exploring the work of Christopher Nolan. And to be clear, we have not seen Tenant, but... We haven't, but we can wildly speculate about it and get it completely wrong. And then see it later. Exactly. But today we're covering everything Nolan has made prior. I think a good place to start is sort of talk about Nolan's style and and what makes a Christopher Nolan film. When you go into a Christopher Nolan film, what are you expecting to see, Joe? Now I'm expecting to see some sort of high concept. I'm expecting to see some sort of insane stunt that Tom Cruise would probably try to kill himself with. Mm -hmm. And I'm expecting to see something to do with time, whether it's playing with time within the frame, like in Inception, or literally timelines, like Dunkirk, yeah, or something like that. sequential storytelling, basically. That is what really he's become. And that's what he's been all of his career, too. And we're going to talk about it, even starting with his first movie, Following. Back yeah, I in just watched the last nineteen. Did you really? Good. Because mm-hmm. I was going to ask you that, because most people haven't seen it. But yeah. that is what you expect from Christopher Nolan, to the point where if you don't get that, I wonder if people would be disappointed at this point. What I like about Christopher Nolan is that you know what you're going to get when you're walking into it. However, it always seems and feels a little bit different. So with M. Night Shyamalan, you know I was you're just about get to that. say, was, has he painted himself into an M. Night Shyamalanian-esque yeah. corner? I don't think he has. Because I was thinking about this. I was like, with M. Night Shyamalan, you're always looking for the tell. or The, the twist. Yeah, the twist. And... Christopher Nolan, I feel like... Which plant is going to kill you? Christopher Nolan in The Prestige, if anything, kind of explained his methodology is the the audience knows they're going to be tricked. And although you're looking for the secret, you're not really looking because you want to be fooled. In a sense, saying that all the clues leading to the final reveal are hidden in plain sight in his films. And it isn't until the third act that the entire picture is revealed to you. Oh, yeah. Spoiler alert for the rest of this episode but for what i'm going to talk about the prestige i think is the most important christopher nolan movie and it's the one that explains christopher nolan the best i agree i appreciate his unfettered ambition and not so much in physical scale of the film or budget but his concepts and so you you know you talk about high concept and sure the more you think about some of the films the more you discover plot holes, but you can't deny that he's skillful in his ability to translate complex ideas cinematically. And though they aren't perfect, I'm somewhat apprehensive when I'm criticizing his films because in most situations, I likely could not have solved the challenges that come up in his films, as well as he did at least. So I can't tell you to make it better if I have no way of coming up with that solution myself. And so, except in The Dark Knight Rises, which yeah, everybody could have come up with better. That's that's so mean. Interstellar as well. <laughs> yeah, and you know what, Interstellar as well. And it's no secret, I think, that those are two of his least thought of movies. And as we're ranking them, because we're going to do like what we did with our Edgar Wright episode. Yeah. So we'll be going into what we think is the most Nolan. The best Nolan, 
and Nolan derailed or over the top. But yeah, when it comes to Christopher Nolan's style, he explores complex ideas through the vehicle of genre or story archetypes, which is something we discussed during our episode exploring H.P. Lovecraft's work. If you're going to be tackling big ideas, you want to use something familiar to deliver those ideas. So, for example, Memento is a murder mystery, but it's really about memory and how the mind works. The Dark Knight trilogy is obviously a superhero film, but it explores the philosophy of good and evil or chaos and order. Inception is a heist film, but explores consciousness and dreams. Interstellar is corn subsidies in America. Correct. <laughs> exactly. Did you know? They, did you know that they they sold that corn? Planted, they sold that corn. They planted mm-hmm. all of that corn and yeah. sold it. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, it was great looking corn, really beautifully shot corn. But my God, I mean, it's smart, right? You're you're already making a profit on the film. <laughs> that's where the real. That's where the real money is Warner Brothers corn subsidies our agricultural company <laughs> but yeah and you see him tackle these robust themes and ideas in a comprehensible manner that can engage both the blockbuster moviegoers and the more cerebral audience because by all accounts Nolan is a blockbuster director however not in the traditional sense because blockbusters are usually associated with ease of enjoyment, exhilaration, and I believe Nolan respects his audience enough to say, look, I want to explore this idea. It's going to get a little bit complicated, but here's some genre and plot you can use as a chaser. But yeah, let's go into what the most Christopher Nolan movie is to you. The most Christopher Nolan to me is Inception. I agree. That was exactly what I put down. It has everything that I've come to associate with Christopher Nolan. Twisty, turny plots, giant set pieces, playing with time. It has all of that, and it's cranked up to 10. Not not 11, because it's not too much. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, it does have its flaws, It also and it does have, and this is what makes it the most Christopher Nolan, is it does have the flaws of Christopher Nolan, too. The stilted dialogue, the, there is a little bit of over-explaining going on in Inception. Well, a lot of over-explaining going on in Inception, especially. Yeah. But I feel like the first time I saw Inception, I was blown away by it. No, I, I loved it the first agree. time. No. I do not think it holds up as a rewatch because of all of that heavy, heavy dialogue where it's just explaining what's going on the whole time. It's definitely front loaded with exposition, which makes it somewhat cumbersome to rewatch. And it's a tough back re- to, it's a tough rewatch. Yeah. And, and thinking back to a lot of his films, they are not as rewatchable when you think about it. Memento, I watched last night as well because I hadn't seen it in so long. And knowing the ending was somewhat exhausting, just seeing the same scene play out. And I think that he refined it. In his later films, I I definitely think when we talk about prestige, he's refined that non-sequential storytelling or telling a story from different perspectives. So it's the same scene in a way that isn't as redundant. Which is ridiculous because literally that movie is about two men reading a diary at one another. Yeah, yeah, basically. And it all works. It's like a diary within a diary. (laughs) It is. And it's cutting back and forth, back in time. Mm Mm-hmm. Both of these characters are reading diaries. Sometimes it's fake diary entries. And it's yeah. amazing that in The Prestige, you always know what's going on. I never was once confused in The Prestige about what's happening, when it's happening, you know, why it's happening. Well, yeah, and I think that that's what makes his work so effective is that despite the jumbled timeline, he's revealing new information in every scene, sort of handing you a puzzle piece one at a time until the third act where you see the sort of crescendo of intercut scenes that he's best known for, Mm -hmm. where you're given the final bits of information that 
allow you to see the bigger picture as a whole. And that style was initially actually adopted out of necessity in following because he shot the film over the course of a year where he'd shoot one scene every weekend. And so he would use the intercutting of scenes to hide any holes in the coverage that he wasn't able to get that day, given his limited time and resources. Following, I I should say following, because following is probably the one that people haven't seen because it was a $7,000 film shot in late 90s, 1998, 99. Yeah. And that's, this is the one that I will actually go over the kind of a synopsis for essentially follows one guy who gets caught up with another man named Cobb, who that is also Leonardo DiCaprio's character in Inception. I guess Christopher yeah. Nolan just likes the name Cobb. <laughs> and he's a writer who's bored. He's looking for inspiration. So he starts following people around on the street, gets hooked up with this guy Cobb who breaks into people's homes, steals their stuff, goes through it. The way that the movie works or the way it's structured, and this is where you can see Christopher Nolan's fascination with structure and also a lot of the things that he will come back later on, the femme fatale character, is that it's structured like a puzzle. You know, different timelines interspersed, intercutting. Without the the memento structure, though, of one forward scene, one backward scene. This is just three timelines cutting back and forth. And so Cobb has set up the protagonist at the end. He sets up the protagonist in the end to essentially appear as though Cobb never existed. That the protagonist is the one that did all these crazy things, that broke into the house, that did all the crimes himself... And every time the protagonist is talking to a police uh, detective about the crimes that he's committed, it makes him sound more and more crazy until at the end, the protagonist realizes that himself. What I found interesting, though, about following is that it reminded me a lot of Pi, Darren Aronofsky's first film, barring the obvious black and white look of the film, but in tone and both filmmakers were willing to embrace their limitations and allowing the film to embody those constraints. In a way, they leaned into it. They shot black and white because color is far more difficult and time-consuming to shoot in. Most of the film is handheld because setting up a dolly requires time, and time is money. And so handheld allows you to get much more footage in a limited amount of time. So Nolan and Aronofsky used the black and white and handheld camera to add to their stories which are moody and center around main characters that are emotionally unstable and obsessive. So it fits the theme very well. Coincidentally, though, Aronofsky, I didn't know this before, but he was initially slated to direct the Dark Knight trilogy, or at least Batman Begins. Yes. So it's interesting to compare and contrast their careers because they are both very cerebral filmmakers. However, Nolan relies on plot far more. And more blockbuster sensibilities and that's something that he deals with in the prestige yeah and he uses that as a vehicle for those robust concepts whereas aronofsky doesn't care about trying to make it go down a little bit easier (laughs) but they both are two sides of the same coin where their main characters will usually be obsessive about something to the point of self-mutilation or Mm self-destruction moving on what is the best nolan in your opinion i think the best is the prestige and for a lot of the things, the reasons why I talked about is it deals with the twisty turny plot that he likes, but it also is, I think, the key to understanding Christopher Nolan, the guy. Yeah. The rivalry between Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale as these two stage magicians. Uh, Hugh Jackman plays Angier, who is a much more of a showman, the greatest showman, as we would find out Hugh Jackman will become. I hate and that movie. I didn't like it mostly because of the 
inaccuracies for P.T. Barnum. P.T. Barnum was a monster. Chris, yeah. Hugh Jackman is very, very charming in that movie. Yeah. Anyway, but Christian Bale plays Borden, who wants to be a sort of technical master. Where they clash is that Hugh Jackman believes that the most important thing is the audience. The audience getting a show, the audience enjoying the entirety of the magic. Whereas Borden believes that technical mastery is the most important thing, that the audience will be wowed by the fact that he is so great a magician and that showmanship is not the most important thing. Which is his methodology in filmmaking. Which is exactly, that's exactly right. Because what is Christopher Nolan if not a giant blockbuster director who wants to give audiences, you know, these these huge set pieces and these Mm -hmm. popcorn moments while also dealing with the technical mastery of it, the the ideas inside of the films themselves. So that is why I I both responded to the prestige and those two characters butting heads, but also think it is the thing that defines Christopher Nolan as a guy who makes movies. Yeah, if that as a makes filmmaker. Sense. No, 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 I completely agree. And I think it lays out his philosophy on filmmaking. In most of his films, he is developing new techniques or refining old ones, like the rotating set in Inception and shooting all of Interstellar in front of LED light screens instead of the green screens. And the black hole simulations that they developed for the film were later used by scientists because of their accuracy, which is another reason why I feel like that film suffered is that they neglected the story in lieu of sort of technical showmanship. But going back to the prestige, it's probably his most toned down relative to his later work because he made the prestige between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. And it's interesting to think of the prestige right before The Dark Knight because it's almost as if Nolan is grappling with how to be the guy who makes Batman in The Prestige. I almost think you feel like you see that in The Dark Knight as well. And he's having that conversation with himself too. He is. And even when in The Dark Knight, you know, there are big ideas in The Dark Knight. Uh, a lot of post 9-11 ideas, a lot of things about the George W. Bush presidency in The Dark Knight, while also trying to be a quote-unquote Batman movie. And that's interesting because I love The Prestige, but I think The Dark Knight is his best. So you're going with The Dark Knight as his best? Yeah, because although I actually think I like The Prestige more than The Dark Knight, in terms of contribution to pop culture and cinema, I feel as though The Dark Knight was his most important film. It, along with Batman Begins, were the catalyst to the insurgence of dark and realistic retelling of Mm -hmm. stories we're all familiar with. It was very close. Dark Knight was number two for me in terms of best. Yeah. You're not going to argue, get an argument from me about, you know, The Dark Knight being bad. Absolutely not. And I I mean, the obvious derailed is Interstellar. (laughs) Interstellar is the correct answer for that. It was too much. It was. Interstellar... You know, it's funny because it's on TV a lot. It's on FX. And because it's a three-hour movie without commercials, it's basically on for the entire evening. So you can turn it on at really any point between the hours of 6 o'clock and 10 o'clock at night and catch some of it. So I've seen a lot of it in pieces. I haven't actually sat down all the way through since we actually saw it together at your old Mm -hmm. house and watched it all the way through, though. But, I mean... So much of the ideas in there are these big, grandiose ideas, and they're all presented in this beautiful manner. Again, the cinematography, I was making a joke about the corn, but the corn, it does look beautiful. And all of it, you know, the the sound design of it, you know, the cinematography of it, it's all great, but it's just a little bit 
too much. Technically speaking, it was a masterpiece. There's no denying that. The music, cinematography, just the spectacle. I mean, it was an experience seeing it for the first time. It it was exciting. At the time, I, I think I mentioned to you, but I felt as though Christopher Nolan was doing for cinema what the characters in the film were trying to do for humanity in a sense to maintain its relevance and its survival at the time theater companies had just removed film projectors from all their theaters and nolan made it so that any theater that showed the film in either 35 millimeter or 70 millimeter would be able to show it early and sort of a contribution to saving film in a way but the film itself was an epic space odyssey that was giving people a reason to leave their couches and come to a theater. This was definitely a film that had to be experienced in theaters. So I appreciate the ambition, but there was a lot that bothered me with it and that left me feeling somewhat empty. Maybe not immediately afterwards, but when I was rewatching it. What about it bothers you? It was just inundated with too many themes and storylines. His relationship with his daughter global warming, finding a new planet to live on, Matt Damon betraying them, time travel, interdimensional travel, black holes, love being the strongest force in the universe. I mean, there was just so much. And honestly, that scene when I was first watching it, the scene with Anne Hathaway, where she says love is the strongest force on Earth. (laughs) Even the first time I saw it, the whole time I was thinking leading up to that line, please, God, don't say it. Please don't say it. And sure enough, she slaps you with that cheesy line. And no joke, people in the theater literally chuckled. Christopher Nolan, that is what he does. His dialogue is not subtle. He's not a subtle guy. No, he's not. Even in stuff like The Dark Knight. Yeah. Everything the Joker says is very on the nose, but it's such an amazing performance. And it's so electric that you kind of don't care. You know, I'm just a dog chasing cars. I don't know what I'd do with one if I caught it. That's, it's not subtle. No, he's not subtle, but come on, dude, you're better than that. It just, it doesn't hold up in this specifically. Specifically Interstellar and a lot of yeah. the space stuff or the black hole stuff, excuse me. It It is kind of a deus ex machina, but at the same time, I feel like it, it kind of gets away with it because nobody really knows what happens in black holes. However, at the same time, mm, that's a little bit very convenient that he just goes into the black hole and sees you know, all of his daughter's life and kind of is immediately transported back to that. So it's both very convenient, but also very on the nose. And again, we talked about seeing the strings for Christopher Nolan. Interstellar is all strings. Yeah, but I'm okay with the strings. And honestly, the black hole thing, like you said, we don't know what happens in them. So it could be specific to each person. And Mm -hmm. I appreciate the creative answer they came up with. Because that scene is really great and emotional. Matthew McConaughey also spends that entire movie trying to get back to his daughter. And you actually brought this up a couple episodes ago. And he spends about five minutes with his daughter at the end. It never pays off, really. And maybe that's why that scene lost its luster. Because that storyline ends up being kind of a throwaway. I honestly would have rather him throw all the other themes and storylines out the window. And stick to the father-daughter relationship. Because I felt like that was a lot more emotionally effective. What Interstellar needed was Jessica Chastain to be writing in a diary, and then Matthew McConaughey to also be writing in a diary, and so then they could have two diaries, just like The Prestige. Exactly. Video diaries, because he has to watch them in the spaceship and cry. Correct. Video diaries, exactly. This isn't Victorian England anymore. We are in space, we are doing black holes, we have FaceTime now. Vlogs. Vlogs, exactly. Yeah. But But, that being said, it was still spectacular to see for the first time. So we talked about Christopher Nolan's most. We said Inception, his best, 
was the Prestige or the Dark Knight, interchangeable. Mm-hmm. The most derailed is likely Interstellar. But now I think we can actually dive in a bit deeper on each of his films. Yeah, we've gotten into it a little bit so far, but it'll be nice to kind of talk to them individually and kind of look at them a little bit. You brought up that you just saw Following. Yeah. And did you just see it for the first time? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. What did you think? I actually liked it a lot. It's always fun for me to see filmmakers' early work. And you see, even then, he was still trying to tell those heady stories. Mm-hmm. Did you watch Doodlebug, his short film? Yes, I have. It's about a man trying to kill a bug in his apartment, but it's more than that. Yeah, the main character is chasing what seems to be a bug through his apartment, only to realize it's a smaller version of himself trying to also kill a bug, yeah. which presumably is also a smaller version of himself. And when he kills the quote unquote bug, he is then crushed by a giant shoe. A man killed like a bug while killing a bug that is also killing a bug. It it was inception in short form. Yeah, it's it's a real Kafka-esque short film. (laughs) But following was great for a first film. It was engaging. It was compelling in a sort of rudimentary sort of way. It was shot for (laughs) $7,000. You can see him trying to find his voice and testing the experience he gained with making corporate videos, which mm-hmm. I was so happy to hear that's how we started because that's where I sort of continued my film school in a way. So it was a little reassuring. I think the most interesting thing about following is that it's a lead into Memento and you can see it. And we talked a little bit about it a couple of minutes ago too. Mm-hmm. The structure of following is not based on the character, whereas the structure of Memento is all based in the character and Lenny's mindset. Because in Memento, he can't remember things for more than a few minutes at a time, yeah. which is really interesting in that the entire movie, characters are taking advantage of that. They take advantage of Lenny. Carrie Ann Moss takes advantage of him you know, in the bar when she spits in his drink, and then he mm-hmm. doesn't remember. Joe Pantaleon, Joey Pants, Joey Pantaleonos, Joey Pants <laughs> takes advantage of it. You know, the whole time, even the the motel, even Mark yeah. Boone Jr., the motel check in guy mm-hmm. takes advantage of it. But I think it's really interesting in this is where the structure pays off is that at the end, Lenny takes advantage of his condition as well, which yeah. sets off the entire plot of the movie. You yeah. know, he's searching for his wife's killer again, Christopher Nolan, starting off with dead wives. Mm-hmm. Very early on. But the fact that Lenny himself takes advantage of it, too, is a really great twist to that structure, which I think is yeah. great. And it's really yeah. the only time since, not the only time, the Prestige does it, too, but where the cross-cutting nature of the editing is based in character and not just on because he wants to do timey-wimey stuff. Yeah, maybe that's not true. Inception, uh, Inception, Inception does it, too. Yeah. But Inception is quite, quite more, a bit of quite a bit of spectacle. yeah s- spectacle and sort of grandioseness. Out, yeah, outside conflict as well. I, I think you're right in saying that it's more character based rather than plot based because Inception the cutting is based on every level has a different time dilution. You know, time moves differently on every level, and so that's really more the cut where the cutting is. It's not character based; it's more plot based. If that makes sense. No, it makes sense because with following, as I had mentioned, was out of necessity. But I think it's interesting that he found that it made for a more interesting way to tell stories. Or maybe that's just how his mind works. And that's just his voice in a sense. And he 
took that aspect and sort of added it to his toolbox and utilizes it in most of his films, if not all. And that's what's cool to see is how he refines it with every film and finding motivation for it in the characters or the plot. Like what you said about Memento and Inception, even with The Prestige, because it is structured like a magic trick, but that cross-cutting climax is a mainstay in his work. He does it in basically everything except for the next movie in the sequence, chronological sequence, Insomnia. Everything else is kind of a cross-cutty, twisty-turny narrative. Insomnia is a very straightforward murder mystery. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen Insomnia since I was a kid. I rewatched Insomnia recently, and I actually really liked it. I liked how straightforward it was. Insomnia is an interesting look at why Christopher Nolan also, I think, did The Dark Knight. Or did Batman in general, specifically The Dark Knight, though, because Mm -hmm. Insomnia follows a murder in Alaska where very much in a reverse 30 days of night where the sun is not going to go down. It's always light all the time. Al Pacino plays a LAPD detective who gets brought in to consult on this case. Why would they bring in an LAPD detective? Don't worry about it. But he's investigating the murder that is committed by Robin Williams. Robin Williams plays the, the murderer. But there's a lot going on with Al Pacino and his career. He covered up some things in L.A. You know, he's a very hotshot detective. So Hillary Swank is also one of the detectives in Alaska who knows his career, who's read all his case files and kind of loves him. Mm-hmm. But in the movie, Al Pacino kills his partner. Al Pacino's yeah. character kills his partner. And he doesn't know if he did it on purpose or on accident because his partner knows information about what happened in L.A. that could expose him. Basically, it's a good thing that his partner is dead now. Yeah, yeah. And there's a moment which I think is really great. And the the best parts of this movie are Robin Williams and Al Pacino interacting with one another. And there's Mm -hmm. a moment where Robin Williams says to him, I don't know if I killed that girl. It just sort of happened. I don't know if I even wanted to kill her. And that goes back to, did Al Pacino's character want to kill his partner in the beginning? Mm -hmm. And that interaction is very much a Batman and the Joker type of relationship. And so I think it feeds really well into The Dark Knight. It's not perfect. Insomnia is not a perfect movie. I think Hilary Swank's character is underdeveloped with a lot of the female characters in Christopher Nolan movies. But I think a lot of the themes that he deals with in especially Batman and the prestige, that duality of nature, are present there in the same way that a lot of the cross-cutty plot stuff in Memento is also there. It's, it's also a really interesting movie in that it takes place during the day. It's all light. Yeah. And so a lot of what Christopher Nolan does takes place in the darkness. So it's interesting to see <laughs> yeah. something him take place. Him work in the light. <laughs> him work in the light, but also it could only take place in the light because the light doesn't allow Al Pacino to get any sleep. And that oppressiveness of the light kind of compounds on top of his guilt and on yeah. top of what is going on in Al Pacino's character's mind. Yeah. And so it is a really, really interesting movie in that way. I think I it's. To, I need to rewatch it. I think I really like Insomnia. I'm talking myself into moving Insomnia up my list. <laughs> I need to rewatch it because I, I remember seeing it as a kid and not necessarily committing to watching it in full because it was on HBO a lot. So I would catch snippets of it. But if anything, I think the duality of Al Pacino's character and Robin Williams is more closely related to Batman and Harvey Dent because they are two sides of the same coin and no pun intended. But in that both are, in a sense, trying to do good, 
however Dent does it in a legitimate way through elected office, but Batman is a vigilante and one is considered good and the other is bad. Did he exactly is is there a good and bad? Did he mean yeah. to kill that did he mean to kill that girl, Robin Williams? Did Al Pacino mean to kill his partner? And yep. that is what Hillary Swank's character does a lot in this movie too, is he's is, she is kind of the the guiding force or the the moral center, I should say, for Al Pacino's character. She says at the end, you know, I know that you didn't mean to do it, even if you don't know that you didn't mean to do it. And so that's interesting and gets to say that to Al Pacino's character. There isn't really a character like that in Batman. Maybe Rachel Dawes is to Batman and Batman Begins. I mean, there is no one like that to Harvey Dent, to your point, but Rachel Dent gets killed in the middle of it. So what does that say? (laughs) That's the point of the Joker, though, that who cares about your moral center if they're not if if chaos isn't playing by your rules, then what's the point? Then there yeah. is no moral center. Then she is completely useless anyway, so we can just get rid of her. The more I think about it, it is kind of about the spectrum of good and evil. Dent is good through order. Batman does good through chaos. And the Joker does evil through chaos. And all three are somewhat dependent on each other, albeit in a sick way where Dent needs Batman to do the dirty work for his cause and Batman needs trustworthy allies in government and the same with the Joker he even says it says it at the end you won't kill me because of some misplaced moral code and I won't kill you because because you're just too much fun (laughs) exactly you're too much fun but it's interesting that he brought that aspect from insomnia to the Dark Knight which is common in filmmakers because sometimes just think laterally like Aronofsky with the wrestler and black swan they're essentially the same film yeah however just set against different backdrops same with the following in memento and insomnia and the dark knight this is getting this is getting ahead of ourselves but man think about the three movie run that he went on with the dark knight the, the prestige the dark knight and then inception well i think that was his sweet spot to be honest i mean just that what a run i'd say decade of Christopher Nolan's career were phenomenal. I cannot think of a three-movie run that had more of an impact than that, in all honesty. Impact, yes. I would say there are, you know, Quentin I think Tarantino. there are better, yeah, there might be better three-movie yeah. runs than that. You know, we talked about M. Night Shyamalan. Shyamalan had an incredible three-movie run with uh, it's Science, The Sixth Sense, and what's the other one? Oh, Unbreakable. Hold on, I want to get the order right. It was Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, then Science. That's, that's right. Shyamalan had a incredible three movie run with six sense unbreakable signs back to back to back. And I know a lot of people don't like signs with the water like thing at the end. I think signs is so tense. Signs is yeah. great up until the end where he goes, you know, they don't like water. And then he bashes a bunch of water with a baseball yeah. bat. I don't even care about that. I thought it was really tense. I mean, that's just as insignificant as War of the Worlds. I mean, the whole reason why the aliens die in the end of War of the Worlds is because they aren't used to the bacteria on Earth. So it's, you know, it's I'm okay with that ending. And I actually like Signs a lot, but it is definitely um, looked down upon. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it is. I mean, especially looking back at M. Night Shyamalan's oeuvre, you know, people point at Signs and they kind of laugh at it as the beginning of the end. I disagree. I like Signs a lot. Lady in the Water was probably the beginning of the end for him. You defend Lady in the Water. Don't deny it. There's no denying over here. I'm upfront about how much I love that film when it first came I out. I know you did. But I recognize that it may not hold up if I, I want to watch it again. I want to rewatch Lady in the Water with you. Yeah, I want to rewatch it because I'm actually curious if I would still think it's as good as I thought it was when I was younger. But going back to the three movie run, I think that period in his career really established him as an icon in cinema history in the way that Spielberg is because I 
think they're both very similar filmmakers, uh, both dealing in complex ideas through blockbusters. Spielberg never had a three-movie run, though, the way that Nolan did. If you really think about it, he Schindler's never had... List, yeah. Saving Private Ryan, and Jurassic Park. No, but you see, Amistad came... Uh, Lost World came before... Hey, Amistad. Hey, Amistad hey. came before Saving Private Ryan, and then Hook was before Jurassic Park. So there wasn't that three movie run. What were you saying, hey, about? <laughs> Don't talk shit about Lost World. <laughs> yeah, I know. You see, you like the Lost World more than everybody else, too. <laughs> no, I just don't think it's as bad as everybody else thinks it is. It's not good. It's not good. I, I agree with that. I will concede that point. I'm thinking about it. Spielberg's never had a three movie run like that because even, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark and then E.T., but then he did technically the twilight zone movie and temple of doom and temple of doom isn't very good it's always sort of broken up a little bit with something that's not as good i mean what minority report catch me if you can the terminal yeah hey no that doesn't i mean artificial intelligent minority report catch me if you can yeah yeah that's right i mean just looking at it he is so damn prolific find me a better west side story yeah west side story is coming out soon interesting see find me a better three movie run than Nolan had with The Prestige, The Dark Knight, Inception. It's difficult to do. In terms of impact, I completely agree. I I, I would say that... Even in terms of quality. No, I I, I mean, I would say Wes Anderson, but you don't like Wes Anderson. See, I don't like Wes Anderson that much. Yeah. No, I think you're right in the sense that directors that appeal to a wider audience, there is no other. Because Wes Anderson, to me, he's had a great five-movie run, if anything. But... In terms of, I guess, mass appeal, Impact. Christopher Nolan. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to look at Quentin Tarantino because, yeah, see, I didn't like Kill Bill, or at least the second Kill Bill, that I much. I didn't like either of the Kill Bills. Wait, what's Kill Bill Whole Bloody Affair? That's just one and two put together. Oh, okay. Okay, so technically, yeah, no, technically Quentin Tarantino had... Inglorious... Yeah, Quentin Tarantino is an interesting case, though. Yeah, Inglorious Quentin Bastards, Tarantino had Inglorious Django, Bastards, Hateful Django, Eight. Hateful, yeah. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Inglorious Bastards, Django, and then Hateful Eight, though. That's an incredible three-movie run. I mean, Reservoir, Do- Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown, and Pulp Fiction, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, his. I think the beginning of, of Quentin Tarantino's career is comparable to the three-movie run of Christopher Nolan, because at that point, it cemented him in Hollywood as a director to be watched. Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't know. I'd still put Nolan above them just because of cultural impact in terms of the Dark Knight and Inception? Well, to an extent, right? Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, I would argue, are far more iconic and important. Yeah. However, I agree. I think both started movements and were influential in their own right. Tarantino revived the indie art house scene, and then Nolan revived the intelligent blockbuster. But anyway, that's that's away from the point. Yeah. What did you think of Batman Begins, though? We've talked a lot about the Dark Knight do you hold Batman Begins in as high of esteem? Because I know a lot of people do. A lot of people argue that the Batman Begins is better than The Dark Knight. I've never heard that argument. I've talked to a couple of people who believe that. Really? Yeah. It's almost hard to talk about Batman Begins because I haven't seen it in so long and The Dark Knight just overshadows it in my mind. Not because of you know it being any better. It's just I've seen The Dark Knight so many times. We saw The Dark Knight in theaters at midnight together. Yeah, but we also saw it five times yeah, after we, that in theaters. Yeah, we did. We saw it a lot. <laughs> that was during the year of film school, and we were just obsessed. But I will say that Batman Begins is probably my ideal superhero film, or at least 
origin superhero film because it was the first to take on that more gritty, realistic view of that genre because I didn't really grow up on the original Batman movies. Yeah, the Batman Forever, there was Batman 1989, then there was Batman Returns, and then there was Batman Forever. Yeah, see, I didn't, I didn't grow then, up on those films. And then so Batman I, and Robin came out in 1997 and just destroyed Batman for a long time. I believe I think, it was 1997. I think sure. Robin ends up destroying Batman constantly because the third film, Dark Knight Rises. When Joseph Gordon-Levitt is revealed yeah. to be Robin. Batman Begins was just good as an entryway to the Batman franchise. I like I like the way that it sets up the more realistic tone. I like that it sets up how Batman is sort of a ninja and the training aspect of it and the way that Liam Neeson as Ra's al Ghul, as it is revealed understands everything about Batman because he trained him. Well, yeah, I think it gave more justification for Batman's motivation. Mm -hmm. and Joel Schumacher did Batman and Robin, but Tim Burton did Batman 1989 and then Batman Returns. And Batman Returns is great because it's just weird, man. Danny DeVito plays the Penguin. <laughs> no, I remember, I remember seeing scenes of it, but I've never seen them all the way through. And that's <laughs> the thing. It always felt just so unnerving because it was both goofy and dark at the same time. Unnerving is a great way to describe that movie. Yeah, and I feel as though Batman Begins, when I first saw it, I was like, okay, this is how I would like to see Batman presented. Because it's more realistic, because it's, it's not more realistic. It's Danny DeVito and, as yeah. the penguin being dragged off his lifeless dead body by a bunch of penguins, which is funny at the end. It was more cartoonish. The villains who are killing so many people are laughing and they're like, you know, ah, ha, ha. It, it, just, it was just so goofy. But then you look at the villains in the Dark Knight trilogy. I mean, even the Joker, for as goofy as we know the Joker to be, I love the take on that character. Yeah. And his plots are so convoluted, but don't worry about that. Yeah. The most sci-fi concept of Batman Returns is Catwoman's cat suit because it's so tight. There's no way she'd be able to get into that cat suit on her own. <laughs> you need... Like four dudes and a pair of pliers to get her into that cat suit. It's so tight. Or just a jar of Vaseline and a trampoline. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, it's incredible. I think I did read somewhere that she actually did need people to literally sew her into that costume. Oh yeah. Because oh, of how sure. tight it was. Yeah. I, I would say for Christopher Nolan unhinged, The Dark Knight Rises and Interstellar. I, I would almost feel like The Dark Knight Rises is 10 times worse than Interstellar. I just, do not like The Dark Knight Rises. No, I remember. I think we saw The Dark Knight Rises together also. I remember you didn't like it. Yeah. Or maybe we talked about it afterwards. Maybe we didn't see it together. But it was too much. The whole wedging in of Robin was forced. It felt like fan service. The plot Bane, where Bane just drives around a bomb the whole time. Yeah, like I like Bane, but I also didn't find him a compelling villain. Although from my understanding, Bane is actually a really cool villain. I liked him. I liked Bane in that movie. I did. I liked the performance. I liked that they went away no, I from liked somebody. The performance. You know, a lot of people wanted them to do the Riddler in Dark Knight Rises. And I thought you can't do the Riddler because that's too close to the Joker. You have to have somebody so physically imposing. The new Batman that's coming out with Robert Pattinson has the Riddler as it as the main villain, and he's looks like just the guy from Seven. That's what it looks like. Who's playing him? Oh, great question. Oh, Paul Dano. Paul Dano is playing the Riddler in the new one, which is an interesting take. Normally, the Riddler is very tall and thin and lanky. Paul Dano is not that. I'm interested to see what they do with it because he straight up looks like a serial killer. I love Paul Dano, though. Paul Dano is kind of perfect for that. 
because he has a weird energy like that. Well, and even just the shape of his face. <laughs> kind of oval shaped. Yeah. He's, he's a strange guy to look at on screen. I could completely buy him as a weird serial killer. No, but I, yeah, I, I think Paul, Paul Dano, Michael Shannon, and the guy from 310 to Yuma, Ben Foster. Oh, Ben Foster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Ben Foster's your guy, though. You like Ben Foster. I love Ben Foster. I think he's so underrated, and he should be doing more. But yeah, those three actors, I I really like them. And anytime, they always play supporting characters, but they always nail it. They just steal the show in every scene that they're in. This is a very interesting cast, too. Robert Pattinson is Batman. Dano is the Riddler. Colin Farrell is going to be the Penguin. I'm interested to see that. Interesting. Because I love Colin Farrell. He was the best part of Fantastic. <laughs> to play the Penguin? Yeah. You know, did you watch the Gotham TV show? Of course you didn't watch it. It's not your thing. You answered your own question, I Joe. Answer. I know the answer. I don't know why I asked. That was a stupid question. Yeah. The portrayal of the Penguin in that, I really liked. That was He was the best part of the Gotham TV show because he was just a crime lord. And you got to see him rise up the ranks of being a crime lord. I like the Penguin as a character. Even Danny DeVito's weird... Weird portrayal. I mean, Danny DeVito is perfect to play the Penguin, though. (laughs) Yeah, he is. A lot of people, when they were speculating on The Dark Knight Rises too, the Penguin was one of the speculated villains, and a lot of people wanted Philip Seymour Hoffman to play the Penguin. That would have been incredible. (gasps) Exactly. Oh, my God. I would have loved that. And then Christopher Nolan would have been known for killing two great actors. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I love both of them, and I was heartbroken, but that would be really messed up. No actor would want to be in a Christopher Nolan film after that. Hey, you'll get an Oscar. Yeah, you'll get an Oscar. You just won't be able to touch it because you'll be dead. Yeah, look, man, you know, sometimes you got to give up something to get something. Yeah, exactly. So we went over over following. We went over following. We've gone over Batman Begins. Now we move into The Prestige, which we've talked a lot about The Prestige, so we don't need to do a lot about it. Yeah. But I just want to reiterate how much I love The Prestige. I love the prestige because you also realize that during the beginning, Christian Bale really comes off as the villain or kind of the more ruthless of the two. He's the more ruthless of the two, but I would argue that Hugh Jackman is the villain. Exactly. Hugh Jackman is far more ruthless. But what I love about the prestige is that Nolan uses the Kuleshov effect with mise-en-scene simultaneously as a form of misdirection, the main tool of a magician. The Kuleshov effect, as we've covered in past episodes, is meaning we derive from two shots shown to us in sequence. Like if you see a shot of a man staring off screen and then the next shot is of a gun, you deduce that he's staring at that gun and maybe that he's contemplating murder. And mise-en-scene is another term in film language, which is French and roughly translates to setting the scene or within the scene. Perfect example of mise-en-scene is the shot in The Shining where Danny is eating ice cream with Crothers and the wall behind Danny, there are knives hung right above his head in a way signifying the danger he's in. So it's basically putting something literal in the frame that eludes or foreshadows something to come. And Nolan literally does that in the first shot of the film, which is the top hats in Tesla's yard. The film's title, The Prestige, is laid right over it. And the top hats are literally the prestige of the film. I like that the movie did sit with Tesla and sort of let Tesla sort of expound on some things because the Tesla stuff isn't plot heavy. You know, it really doesn't have a lot to do with the plot, but it does have a lot to do with the themes. And I just think David Bowie's so good as Tesla that I'm glad that it 
that we got to sit with him for a while. Yeah, I love the decision of fitting him into the story. But like I was saying before, the film is really where Nolan perfected his non-sequential storytelling and intercutting of scenes in the third act. I mean, the final act or the final few scenes felt like a Russian nesting doll, like a twist within a twist within a twist. I mean, the compelling nature of it to me is these two people going back and forth and the rivalry with them. I could understand how a lot of people would view it as cold because that is the criticism of the prestige is that it's just such a cold movie. I don't think it's cold. Unlike very unlike the other magicians from Victorian era movie that came out in the same year, the illusionist Yeah, with Edward, Edward Norton and Paul Giamatti and Jessica Biel. I really like the illusionist too. And I don't like the fact that these two get compared to each other because they're so completely different. The illusionist is a love story. Whereas the prestige is a, you know, thriller. The prestige is basically black swan. Kind of. It really is just a pursuit of perfection. It's an obsession that Mm -hmm. ends up becoming their undoing. What an odd way to, structure of film the entire plot set off by a knot that is the catalyst that's the catalyst for the whole thing is that christian bell's character borden he ties a different kind of knot that ultimately kills angier's wife when it goes wrong and she couldn't slip the knot and the whole thing is angier asking borden at the funeral what type of knot did you tie and borden says i don't know and what we find out later is that that was the wrong twin he literally couldn't say what knot he co- he tied because he didn't know. The other twin t- tied the knot. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I think the prestige is what cemented Nolan as a great filmmaker, for me at least, even before The Dark Knight. Well, The Dark Knight is what made Christopher Nolan Christopher Nolan. And mm-hmm. we talked a lot about The Dark Knight, too. So I don't think we need to really go in a lot of The Dark Knight. But I will say about The Dark Knight, it does have one of my favorite fan theories of all time. Which is? Which is... The Joker is a soldier, you know, a guy who was in Iraq that has come back and is now kind of taking revenge on the world. Uh, It's how he knows so much about explosives. It's how he knows so much about weapons, how he got the scars. And so that was sparked by the scene with Harvey Dent where he goes, you know, if a truck full of soldiers blows up, nobody will care. But that's where the theory came from. I don't believe that that's how it was written. But it's just a yeah, fun I was gonna thing. Say, is that is, that's is not that why you connected it to the Bush presidency? Well, because so that? much, but so much of the movie is the Bush presidency stuff. You know, the spying on people with the phones at the end, and then Morgan Freeman saying, mm-hmm. "You know, no man should have this much power by spying on people's cell phones." It makes sense why this theory gained some traction, because so much yeah. of the themes do deal with that. Now, I do not believe that it was written that way, obviously. Yeah. But it's just yeah. a it's just a thing that makes sense. You know what my favorite fan theory though is is two of them. That James Bond is a just a code name that's passed down from one guy to the next guy. I like that. But it also feeds into Sean Connery's character in The Rock is his James Bond character because they're the same type of guy. They're both British SAS <laughs> agents. It's true. This is why I like it. They're both British SAS agents in The Rock and James Bond, and that he was captured as James Bond and thrown into a black site prison, and that now they are bringing James Bond back out of retirement for one last job. I love The Rock. I, I fully subscribe to that theory, even though it's nonsense. You are a perfect example as to why people buy into conspiracy theories, because they just support <laughs> their own worldview. Correct. It was a lot of fun. I go, yeah, that makes sense. I can buy that. <laughs> Next up is Inception, though. We've talked quite a bit about Inception also. Inception is probably my favorite Nolan film. Really? Just because of the dream aspect alone. 
I, I'm extremely interested in dreams and sleep science as a whole. So I was so excited when I first saw it. I know the argument that a lot of people have, too, is that it was a little bit too structured. You know, it wasn't dream logic-y enough. The one main one that people point to is when Tom Hardy's character Eames says, dream a little bigger, darling, when Joseph Gordon-Levitt is shooting yeah. the guys in the dream. And all he does is pull out essentially a grenade launcher. Mm-hmm. Well, if you want to dream a little bigger, why don't you just, you know, bring in a uh, a 747 to drop a bunch of bombs on you know all of them or why don't you just because that's too intrusive to the subconscious i mean i guess i'm i understand that argument but then but what about okay i'm playing devil's advocate here and i don't i didn't really mean to do this but what about the part where the train the train comes in and bashes through all of france the train isn't them that well it's it's in new york but the train isn't them the train is that isn't that is in new york you're right yeah uh, the, the train in France is when the the shooting the explosions happen in France. The expl yes when he's training Ellen Page. That's in France. Sorry, no, actually it's downtown LA, I think. Yes, but the train isn't them; it's Cobb's subconscious. Okay, that's fair. What's great about Inception is that he pulled off a pretty complex story structure in a very comprehensible way, and that's what I really appreciate about this film is that he used terms we all experience like the kick and and the way that time is experienced in dreams i didn't think inception was as complicated as everybody said it was though i thought it was pretty easy to follow yeah i don't know why people that was so stupid i didn't think we're like i I had to watch it twice and i was like what are you talking about why (laughs) i don't know yeah that like and that was like a big criticism (laughs) they spend i mean i would argue a good hour and a half just having leonardo dicaprio walk down streets explaining the plot (laughs) yeah majority of the first half is explanation what more do you want even at the end in the snow planet leonardo dicaprio is still explaining to ellen page what's going on (laughs) one of the criticisms also is that people wanted to know how the machine worked like why can you enter in people's dreams with this machine i didn't care about that either no, because no one has ever explained to you why the no DeLorean or the flux capacitor works. No. Our friend who believes open water should have won Best Picture at 2003, that was one of his big criticisms as well of how does the dreaming thing work? Why do they get connected to these dreams with this machine? I, I, didn't, know know the, I didn't know he said that. Yeah. He goes, I wanted to know the intricacies of this. I go, why? It doesn't matter. It's a machine that lets you enter into people's dreams. Just go with it. It's fine. Well, yeah, I guess that makes sense because he has a very kind of analytical mind and he is a scientist in a sense. But knowing how the machine works doesn't move the story forward. So I didn't mind it that much. And you can't spend an hour explaining how dreams work within the story and then try to also explain how the machine works. Like if you thought it was confusing before. Yeah. And there are some things that I do understand the criticisms of, you know, how could Ken Watanabe's character just buy an airline and then the next day they can fly on it. That's not how mergers and acquisitions work. There are some things that are very convenient in it. And again, a lot of that stuff I understand why people would say that. I kind of don't care. Well, that's the thing is his films aren't perfect and I don't think that they try to be. No. It's when things like that in the plot start to almost insult the char- not only just the audience but the characters in it. And this is where I'm going to talk about The Dark Knight Rises with some of the plot choices in that. The yeah. bomb driving around, like I mentioned earlier, that's where I understand a lot of the criticisms. Oh, the the back thing where Bane breaks Batman's back and he just sort of magically gets to come back yeah. and, you know, be Batman again. You know, how does he get from, I guess it's the Middle East, I think, where they are, that prison. 
back well, the nuclear to bomb i mean the nuclear he, bomb that would decimate new york regardless there's no way he would get far enough away for it not to affect for years and generations to come exactly and even that he would survive that blast you know even if he ducked out of the plane yeah. at the end you know he would never be able to swim far enough to not be affected by the radiation it's it's egregious things like that yeah. Yeah. where it steps over the line in a way that i think inception is okay with or maybe that's just a line that everybody has and that I don't care about. Maybe to somebody buying an airline steps over that line and they go, that's the stupidest thing ever. You can't just buy an airline. Maybe. Maybe it's just personal to everybody. And honestly, the bomb wasn't my biggest issue with that movie. It was the scale of destruction and that they could successfully isolate an entire American city. Yeah. I mean, what I love about the first two was that even if at times it was unrealistic, albeit less over the top than most superhero films, Dark Knight Rises went way too far for me. And the thing is that Nolan is aware of how ineffective that is because, like you said, the Joker even says one person dying is more effective than a truckload of people. So me imagining like a, a stadium of people just collapsing, I mean, it's just like, uh, I don't know, it's too much. We've talked about Interstellar and we've talked about The Dark Knight Rises quite a bit. And so I don't think we need to touch on it a little bit or as much now. Yeah, I think we can fill four hours talking about Christopher Nolan. So this may be a good place to wrap up. To wrap up, what do you want to see Christopher Nolan do next? Because Tenant just came out. Again, we haven't seen it. Can't wait to see it because it does look interesting, although the reviews are mixed, apparently. I haven't read anything about it, though. But people aren't really as high on this one as a lot of his other ones. However... What do you want to see from Christopher Nolan? Well, I'm curious about Tenet because I wonder if it's a time travel movie, but told sequentially in the way that Back to the Future was. Because if not, I think I maybe would like to see him do something straightforward, which is a straightforward storyline. Because even when I saw Dunkirk and thought that that was what he was doing, it turns out he wasn't. It was non-sequential. No, exactly. And that's the thing. And that's the, that is my answer to what do I want to see Christopher Nolan do next is I want to see an insomnia-like story. I just want to see an insomnia-like story. I want to see him do his version of Seven. Yeah, sort of a straightforward crime drama. Is, is Tenet sequential? Do you know? I don't know. Other than the time I don't, travel? I don't want a Wikipedia or anything because that'll give yeah, away I don't the plot. Know anything so I don't yeah. know. So we could just look like fools in this episode. But what do you want to see Christopher Nolan do next? I want to see him do a horror film. Horror? Okay. Because I would have said it before Tenant time travel because he's never touched on time travel. A natural next high concept that he can go for. I mean, what, what else is there for him to do other than horror? horror. He's not going to yeah. do a romantic comedy. <laughs> no, that would be the most frosty romantic comedy you've ever seen when harry met sally harry does not meet sally he has nothing wants nothing to do with sally sally dies in the beginning of when, <laughs> right. sally, when directed by christopher nolan <laughs> but i think that wraps up our episode on christopher nolan's body of work how do you rank christopher nolan's movies and what would you like to see him do next did you agree or disagree with anything we discussed? Let us know on YouTube, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find all those links on channel8andahalf.com. That's channel8andahalf, completely spelled out, .com. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider liking and sharing with family and friends. We have new episodes every Thursday. Until next time, my name is Joe Galino. And I'm Andrew Hanna, and this is Channel 8 and a Half.